coming up next on the Wetfly Swing Podcast. We wanted to do two things. We wanted to figure out how you could study one of these things live and, you know, keep them safe. And we wanted to change the public perception of, you know, Jaws, right? You know, you talk about uh, sharks being apex prey of the ocean. But what happens when, you know, they're over harvested and start to decline in population, right? You know, it's any ecosystem. Other things thrive and that can have a negative benefit and all these things. That was Matt Schilling shedding some light on shark recovery work, sharks, the Wind River, and sustainability today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how are you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. Time for a little travel time check. Uh, before we get started, I just want to remind you, wetflyswing.com slash travel time is a great way to enter and find a spot to potentially be a co-host on this show or uh, make a trip with me, uh, win a trip with me to a local trip near your home. That's wetflyswing.com slash travel time. Today's episode is sponsored by Lake Lady Rods, building distinctive custom rods, each created one at a time to the exact specifications for each angler. Lake Lady only uses world-class top-of-the-line components and products. And Chris is doing some good stuff over there. I've been using one of his custom uh, four weights uh, this year, and it's been really great, a great casting rod. If you can, check out Lake Lady right now, wetflyswing.com slash Lake Lady, L-A-K-E-L-A-D-Y. Matt Schilling walks us through the nonprofit IndieFly and what they're doing to create sustainable local fly fishing operations. We find out where in the world they first got started in South America, why they are now focusing on the Wind River Reservation, and some of the challenges uh, to giving indigenous people the skills to run their own businesses in, in this space. We're also sponsored by Jackson Hole Fly Company, a new kind of fly shop designing and manufacturing their own high-quality fly rods, reels, and gear, and over a 1,000 fly patterns. Right now, you can get 25% off your first order. You can head over to jhflyco.com slash swing to get started right now. That's jhflyco.com slash swing. You support this podcast by clicking over through that link to Jackson. Some really cool stories in this one, uh, including one about a group of 11-year-old kids who are basically running this conservation movement that they put together in South America. Really amazing story. So, uh, so without further ado, here he is, Matt Schilling from IndieFly.org. How's it going, Matt? Good, man. How are you? Appreciate the opportunity, Dave. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for taking a little time today to to dig into Indie Fly. It's uh, it's a name that I've been hearing uh, quite a bit. Oliver White. Uh, I can't remember when we had him on. It's been a number of years now, but I'm pretty sure he brought this up. We're gonna dig into the background of Indie Fly, the the great work you guys are doing with this um, this program, and then uh, we're gonna and we're gonna eventually get there. But talk about how you first got into fly fishing. Then we'll start there. Yeah, I had a um, probably a dissimilar. In introduction to the sport than most. So, um, I started a little bit later in life, probably when I was, uh, man, mid twenties. Um, I, uh, was completely burned out what I was doing at the time, kind of took a little career change and, and reverse course, wanted to add value to the world still. But, um, so I started this, a different nonprofit with a buddy who was a big fly angler. He had a, uh, a freestone river, <clears throat> um, that, uh, you know, in Utah, 
that was an amazing trout fishery. And I really learned there, um, you know, how to, how to do the basics. And then I probably made a mistake and I started doing saltwater trips a little too early. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I, I didn't really have the skill set to do those saltwater trips, but it was part of, you know, what I wanted to do and how I wanted to serve. And it kind of all, all went back into it. And so, um, definitely made some mistakes along the way, but I, I really enjoy it. I'm, I'm a true believer that there's something about standing in a river or a body of water that's, that's, uh, you know, therapeutic and healing. So I'm a big fan. Nice. Nice. And, and how did you, it, we talked a little, like I said, back when Oliver White was on, I'll put a link in the show notes to that episode, but how did you connect with uh, the Indie Fly? Yeah. So, um, we started Indie Fly in 2014 and it was really, uh, out of a project that was led by Costa Sunglasses. So, um, Costa had a pro at the time who was doing a birding trip to this little village in uh, South America, Guyana is the country. And um, he went down there and kind of fell in love with people. And he went back to Costa and said, look, you know, they need some help. I'm not quite sure what you can do, but if there's an opportunity, you should take a look. And Costa at the time said, yeah, we're all in. And so they put together a team. I was thankful to be part of that team. And we kind of went down and figured out how we could help this community protect their resources. You know, it, it's a community of about 294 people, um, you know, and all their peers had taken the um, stance of, look, you know, we don't want to do this, but we've shifted from the barter economy and the way that we can make money the easiest is exploitation of resources. And this little village, it's called Rewa, kind of took a stand and said, look, we don't want to do that. And, but we need help. Right. And so what they do have is this very special fish called an arapaima. And for most fly anglers, it will be the largest fish that they catch on the fly. And so we needed to figure out, you know, one, is it legally, can we do this? Is it a viable destination? Will people come? Um, and you know, three and, and most important is how do you catch this thing? And so, um, you know, Fast forward a little bit, we figured most of those things out, and then we had this model that we thought we could replicate around the world and that there was a need for it. And while the world certainly didn't need another nonprofit, nobody was doing what we were doing, so we stood up Indie Fly out of that. That's right, and Arapaima is a great, uh, we've talked about that a little bit on, on the podcast here, and it's a pretty unique, yeah, it's a gigantic fish and, and very cool. It, so that's how it started, basically. Costa was the was kind of leading things and uh, and really you got down there and so by at that time when um when indyfly started arapaima wasn't really people weren't fishing for it that much well they, they weren't fishing for it as we talk about fishing they were fishing for it to feed families and at one point down there um you know it was almost extinct and then they put protections around it um what's a little bit unique about this this interior of guyana and all the villages that that are there is that they're um, politically and legally very protected. So there's um, a law in Guyana called the Amerindian Act, and it uh, outlines what people can and cannot do within these communities, and you know, really as the protection for the communities. Um, and uh, you know, so we had to get permission, obviously, from the from their federal government, so to speak, to go and work with these communities. But also, um, there was. Uh, 
somewhat vague, um, you know, interpretation of the protection around Arapaima at the time, you know, um, and so to target the species was a question which we obviously got figured out. Um, but in the beginning, you know, like basically they said, well, we can't catch th these things, period. Um, you know, we're obviously every project that we do is catch and release. So, um, you know, obviously we're not killing them and, and feeding them to people. But uh, yeah, at one point they were heavily targeted. You know, you think about a two to 300 pound fish that feeds a lot of people. Right. Um, and so, you know, they were just putting nets at the, wow. <laughs> in the middle of the river and, you know, wiping out as many as they can. Um, yeah. So that's it. So, so you go in here and in, in this example, you teach, I mean, basically the model is you help, well, maybe you could describe, describe how the indie fly works. Cause it's about letting them basically take the lead right on these guiding programs. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, we help indigenous communities protect the remaining pristine places in the world. So the, the vehicle that we use to do that is often fly fishing or, or all of it fly fishing at the moment. And so we, um, you know, enable indigenous communities to own and operate fly fishing ecotourism businesses. And one of the things that sets IndyFly apart and really the only way that the model works in our eyes is that these are 100% community owned and operated businesses. We don't take a stake. There's nobody else that has a stake stake, all benefit goes to the community. And at the end of the day, what these businesses provide are sustainable livelihoods, jobs, right? They generate community-wide economic benefits. Um, and we can go into a little bit more of that as we talk about specific projects. And then, you know, lastly, uh, but not of lesser importance is they create incentives for the protection of homelands. Um, you know, we, we aren't the organization that goes in and says, here's a bunch of money for the protection of your resources. You should figure that out. Here's what we think is best. Um, and then kind of go away. We take this long-term approach to provide an economic incentive for, um, you know, community led protection of resources, if that makes sense. Um, and you know, like just, just going down and talking about Rewa a little bit more in the beginning, uh, you know, look, I naively expected loincloths and spears. You're in the middle right. of the Amazon bases, basin. And what I got was Ed Hardy t-shirts. Um, and what happens there is that during the dry season, so rainy season to dry season, the water moves 40 feet vertically, right? So, um, dur during the rainy season, the jungle floods, so to speak, which helps these arapaima move from the river to these ponds and then it recedes and then you can target the fish in the ponds. Um, but during the dry season, the, the community has lots of visitors. Um, many of those visitors come and give, uh, gifts that, you know, uh, are tied to some point of, uh, business deal. So timber rights, mineral rights, you know, you obviously have a ton of timber, you're, you're in the rainforest, but, um, you know, the other thing is bauxite, gold, diamond, you know, they're just a plethora of resources that, that each community owns. Um, and, you know, unfortunately there's a lot of people coming in and saying, you know, here's a new, uh, you know, what's a good example? Here's, here's a new motorbike for the two shower chief's family. Um, you know, can you sign here and give us timber rights oh, for, wow. you know, X amount of land. So, um, you know, they, my point is they'd shifted from the barter economy a long time ago. And yeah. a lot of these men in the community, especially were going off for months at a time and working in mining camps because they had to, you know, provide for their families, uh, on, on a, you know, a currency basis. And so, uh, you know, they would go work in a camp, a mining camp, say, and they would come back and, 
you know, basically they're breaking even. They have to pay for travel and lodging and food while they're there. And they come back with a little bit of money in their pocket, but it didn't really move the needle. And now, you know, you fast forward quite a few years, all those men, uh, you know, stay in the village and work at the eco lodge and, you know, make more money than they did before. So, um, that's just a little brief history. You can go into more if you'd like, but yeah, that's how we're. And so I'm curious, and you might not know the answer to this, but it seems interesting because, and I don't know, you know, Guyana, it, basically we're talking about, I mean, if you look on a map and, you know, I mean, there's obviously places we'll talk more about where you're working, but kind of South America and, so what are, you know, like the timber rights, if you go to a local group and say, hey, sign this, do the local people actually, how does that work? Because do they own the rights to that or is there a government or, or what's going on? Just give us a little brag because I don't know how the government, uh, that, that process works. Yeah, it's really interesting there. Again, you know, back to the Amerindian Act. So um, each village does own their own land. Um, and so there's a couple of things there. One, obviously, you know, they, they have some autonomy and what they can do with that to a point. Um, but it also allows them for, uh, or, or the opportunity to expand their land holdings based on a, a business justification. So for, with Rewa's example, you know, it kind of got held up over the COVID period. But, you know, they have applied for an extension of their land holdings. So, um, you know, uh, doubling its size, basically. Uh, on the justification of this sport fishing business now, right? So in theory, people going down and fishing Rewa are helping to protect and keep pristine a pretty large section of rainforest, right? That's at risk. Um, and that's just something, you know, you, you, you know, like the average angler, even, you know, we didn't think of in the beginning, right? Um, but it's also a unique situation there. That's what I was going to say. So yeah, if you look at other places, you know, is it similar? Maybe we can talk about that. So how many places around and are you guys kind of around the globe talk about that the other areas you're in yeah so you know in the beginning we started with rewa and aeropima and when you look to scale something like this you want to do it in a few ways right you want to you want to scale geographically um, and you want to scale from a species diversity standpoint and so we, what we did was we kind of looked around the world and said, all right, what's the opposite of, of this offering, right? You know, we want to appeal to as many anglers as possible. So, you know, we have this really cool immersive jungle experience, um, you know, that's really big fish. Um, and so we looked at a, a place in French Polynesia called, uh, well, I'll just leave the name of the island out, but it didn't really have a community. And we're a name, we're, we're you know, that's our mission is, you know, helping communities. Um, and so, uh, what we did like about French Polynesia and, you know, most people know Tahiti or Bora Bora, right? But there's 118 plus islands and atolls in French Polynesia, obviously not all inhabited, but in theory, if you can make this, this model work in one place, it's easily scalable to other places within the country. And so, um, we found this little atoll called Ana, um, and it's, uh, it's an amazing, amazing place, uh, straight out of a postcard, but you know, it's flash fish flats fishery, bonefish, giant trevally, um, oddly a pretty big population of Napoleon wrasse, um, you know, and, and all the other species that you'd find around the reef. And, uh, you know, that, that one kind of took a turn too, which was, you know, I have this very vivid memory on a first trip there. We were sitting in someone's driveway, um, you know, just talking and someone asked the question just out of a driver of, you know, 
so what's your favorite fish to eat here? Obviously, you know, you eat a lot of fish. Um, and everybody almost at the same time said bonefish. Um, and you know, odd to hear, right? You don't hear that in a lot of places, number one, but number two, we kind of looked at each other and like, oh, okay, you know, this is going to be a primary targeted species. Maybe we should figure out, you know, how sustainable this fishery is. And so, um, you know, we sent a scientist there with some partners that, that, uh, lived there for three years and his whole job was to figure out the state of the bonefish fishery and come to find out it was in collapse. Um, and you know, fast forward, it's, it's, it's a unique community. So, um, you know, you have this, uh, lagoon in the middle and they've built these ancestral traps and unlike many atolls, uh, tidal inflow is almost minimal there. So there's one place that bonefish can go out to spawn in the open ocean. And of course that's where all the traps are, right? So, you know, you, they, the community has built these traps and bonefish aggregate move out and if they go right they get caught in the trap and if they go left they go out to spawn right so you're you're talking about killing thousands of bonefish at a time and just over the years you know that has an impact um and so you know we kind of took the data around to the community and um got a little bit of pushback in the beginning to be honest with you the the older generation was look, you know, this is culturally significant to us, um, you know, which it is. They they actually ship a lot of bonefish off the island, you know, to family in Tahiti. Um, but, uh, you know, the kids were like, look, you know, this needs to be something done. Uh, there needs to be something done about this. So, you know, and we had gotten them like a drone so they could go out and do fish counts and a software program to help with that. And they, they petitioned the government to create this marine education area, which we, we would refer to as a marine protected area, which um, is close to the spawning aggregation. But they would go out there every day and, uh, you know, learn. And one of the unique things about these kids is that um, they're all age 11 and under. So in their system of education, um, you know, in French Polynesia, typically, um, you know, you only live on your home island for school until age 11. And then at that point, you go to a different island or atoll, depending upon where you live, to what we would kind of refer to as middle school. And then eventually you end up in the capital, Papayete, which is on Tahiti, uh, for high school. And, you know, when, when you think about going back to a community with zero jobs that's largely subsisting off of an economy based around a coconut tree it's or you get a job in a restaurant based in a tourism economy and help your family back on that island or atoll um you know it's a tough decision so my point is when we're talking about these kids that led this conservation effort you're talking about 11 and under which is amazing and so um you know eventually you know, fast forward, they continued to look at the data and they said, all right, we want to make sure that there are bonefish around for us when we're grandparents, so to speak. And they went around door to door in the community and, um, asked their uncles, aunts, grandpas, grandmas to start making decisions for them and not necessarily for themselves. And they got this thing called a Rahui past, which is, um, a Polynesian cultural moratorium on harvest basically. Right. So, um, so for five years, um, during the spawn, they committed everyone in the community committed to, um, leaving the bonefish alone and not harvesting them, which is a big shift in mindset, mm -hmm. um, in, in, for conservation there. And again, led by these kids. So, 
Um, I'm kind of rambling on about that, but that, that, that one took a turn that we didn't expect. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and and I guess my point is when we go into these communities, we let the science guide us for sure. Um, you know, the last thing we want to do is walk into a community and invite people there to apply pressure to a resource that can't handle it. So, um, we're very driven by science in the beginning again, because, you know, you don't have a business if nobody catches fish when they come down. Today's episode is sponsored by Fairflies, founded with the idea of finding ethical solutions to flight tying materials and products. They've done just that by creating jobs for marginalized groups, both in the U.S. and abroad. I connected with Jeff quite a number of years ago, and we've been keeping in touch here, so it's great to be sharing this amazing message and story that Jeff has put together. We've had him on an episode already, and uh, he shared some of that story. 5D brushes make flight tying fast and enjoyable for all skill levels. Fairflies has replaced craft fur with their own fly fur, a product made by fly tires for fly tires. Now they also are running the show at Wasatch Custom Angling Tools and bring on a bunch of new uh, quality, high quality tools. They have over 50 tools right now and uh, something for every fly tire. A true do-it-yourself company helping you tie better flies faster. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash fairflies right now. That's F-A-I-R-F-L-I-E-S. You support this podcast by clicking over through that link. Okay, back to the show. It sounds like here fishing, right, um, you know, exploitation is a big part, but how does also you factor in some of these bigger things, right, because we have obviously things maybe we don't have as much control over, but climate change, other things that are going on out there. Do you guys you know, factor that into the mix where you're like, because we see this in other areas, right, with like steelhead populations where, you know, things are going down just partly because of, you know, ocean conditions. Do you guys see that also? I'm not as familiar with some of these areas out here. Yeah, a a fair bit. And, you know, that's always something that we take into account. You know, we're, we're trying to create generational change and often that comes with generational businesses, right? So when you talk about that type of time horizon, you have to take those things into account. Um, and, you know, we get, or I think about this a lot and, and, you know, we get asked this question, but, you know, I'm sure listeners right now may be asking themselves, look, you know, there's a lot of global issues on the forefront today. Why, why do you guys focus on indigenous communities? Um, and the answer for us is pretty simple. You know, the, the indigenous communities are custodians of 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity. Hmm. If you if you want to target a population and help them protect the world, the, the remaining biodiversity, this is the population that lives in that biodiversity, right? Um, they are the custodians. So, um, you know, in, in my thought process, everyone uh, who cares about climate change or cares about, you know, making sure that their family has a place to live for generations, um, you know, taking care, care of, of our home, you know, should be doing everything they can to help indigenous communities protect it um, because yeah. they are the custodians. Um, and we kind of got off, you know, the, the path of, uh, you know, scaling to projects or, you know, what other projects we have. So let's jump back there for a yeah. minute. Um, you know, so we, we've figured out Anna, you know, after some time, um, which, you know, is a really cool destination culturally and from, from, you know, a fishing standpoint. Uh, and then, um, you know, kind of all along the way, we wanted to do something domestically almost from day one, you know, like, look, 
we can do this all over the world, but there's also a need here domestically. And so we started looking at, you know, Native American reservations and we, uh, spent some time on, on quite a few and we ended up, um, you know, partnering with the Eastern Shoshone and Northern Arapaho of the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming. So you're, um, central Wyoming, about equidistance from Jackson and Cody and Casper, if you will, uh, in the middle of the state. And, uh, you know, it's 2.3 million acres of largely untouched, uh, Jeez. you know, beauty, you know, you have thousands of miles of streams and 250 some odd lakes. And, you know, a lot of these are high Alpine stocked golden trout lakes, right? I mean, uh, the world record golden trout, it comes from this area. And so, um, you know, amazing resources, but you have uh, a few issues there. One, um, you know, very simple is enforcement. You have, uh, again, 2.3 million acres. You have a fishing game office filled with five people. Three of them are wardens, right? So at any given time, one warden is covering a million acres, impossible job. Um, you know, you, you have, a lot of pressure there. Um, and, but you also have, uh, you know, 80% unemployment and, you know, substance abuse problems and, you know, kind of all of the, the issues that you read about or hear about in the news on a reservation. Um, unfortunately this is, they all exist there. Um, and, you know, part of those issues, if you talk to the experts stem around, solving the unemployment problem. Well, how do you do that uh, on in a community like Wind River? Well, you you figure out how to sustainably utilize what they have and that's these amazing resources, right? And so, um, you know, we we thought we could figure it out, but you know, we wanted to do it right. So, we basically went there and um, you know, spent 4 years just kind of hanging out and building trust. And the reason it may seem a little bit crazy but like when we go into projects we're super sensitive to the history of other people coming in and like trying to solve problems and disappearing mm -hmm. um you know the level of skepticism rightfully so is super high in a lot of these communities um and so our approach is a little bit different in that we're trying to create these generational changes so if it takes us like four or five years to um get to a point where we say hey can we help you do this? Um, that's fine. And, you know, you can do other things. You know, you're obviously assessing viability during that time. You're doing all those things. But none of this works if the relationship isn't built on trust. Yeah. So, um, you know, again, being in it for the long game, uh, you know, we wanted to learn as much as we can about their culture and each tribe and, you know, developing relationships and doing all that. But fast forward. So, um, you know, a few years later, we uh, went in front of the intertribal council. So a little unique thing about this reservation is there are two tribes, um, you know, so uh, typically or historically, um, these tribes have been arch enemies throughout their entire existence. So oh, wow. um, there's still some some of that <laughs> today, if you can yep. imagine. Um, but, you know, on these big initiatives that impact the reservation you know, they, they have what's called the intertribal council. So it's basically each business council comes together and we presented a plan in front of them that really focused on, um, you know, uh, 
a youth awareness about the environment and, you know, incorporating the value of their culture taught by elders. Um, you know, how do you provide sustainable opportunities for kids to stay on the reservation in a healthy way? Um, you know, developing strong conservation ethics, protecting their largest asset, right. Which is the land. Um, and, you know, promoting healthy opportunities to, uh, you know, avoid addiction, but also raising the awareness of the reservation as an outdoor destination. You know, you, you, um, for us, like one of the first things we did there was we took a bunch of kids camping. Right. And, you know, we kind of naively again expected, uh, to learn a lot about their culture and history and family's life and all these things. Well, come to find out like the place that we were there and in 2.3 million acres, there are a lot of places to camp. We, you know, we're relatively close to the highway. Nobody had ever been there. Um, none of the kids. And, you know, I guess with the exception of one. And what we quickly found out was, you know, these kids are facing a lot of the challenges that every other kid faces, which is, you know, dependency on screens and pressures right. of school and family life and all those things. But everything there is just elevated. You know, a lot of these kids are being raised by their grandparents, um, you know, because uh, the time of their parents was was troubling on the reservation. And that brings its own challenges, right? You think about access, right? As their grandparents age, they just aren't physically able to take them out. You know, you have 20 or 80% unemployment, you know, like not a lot of people can afford a car. So the ability to get around is, is diminished. And so anyway, point being is, um, you know, we kind of said, all right, let's take a step back and make sure that the future stewards here have what they need to, um, you know, ensure that these resources remain pristine. And so we're really focused in the beginning on, on, uh, you know, youth engagement, uh, and then, you know, just one quick thing and then I'm going to stop talking for a minute. Yeah. Um, we, uh, <laughs> we, you know, when you look at the model of indie fly, it can be complex and long and, you know, just the time that it takes to get from initiation to launching even, uh, a project as a destination can be years, right? It, it's, costly, all of these things. And we wanted a way to make a little bit more of an immediate impact. And so um, we launched this uh, social impact initiative to where we go in communities that uh, are, are doing, you know, utilizing the resources in a sustainable way through ecotourism um, that sometimes is partnering with a, uh, an outfitter or, you know, like the first one we did was with African Waters, who um, does a really good job of ensuring that when they say we make an impact in the community, they're actually making an impact in the community. Um, you know, and uh, this little village in, uh, it's called Mahangwa, in, in Lesotho, Africa. So if you, if you look at, um, a map, it's the little landlocked country within, within South Africa, um, you know, had never had power before that for years, the government was saying, you know, Oh, we're going to go down river and, you know, in, install power for you. And it just never happened, never happened. Finally, we were like, look, let's just make it happen. And so, um, you know, it was really led by Keith and, and, and the African water crew, and uh, Johan on our team, but you know we were able to go in and install solar in you know 56 houses, I think is what it ended up being, and give these people a basic need for the very first time in their life, and things like that that don't cost a lot of money compared to these larger projects. 
um, have a really, really deep impact on the day-to-day life of, of the people in these communities. So, um, you know, we're doing a fair bit of, uh, amount of that as well. So it sounds like it's pretty fairly diverse. I mean, I w- I'm glad you mentioned the the Wind River. That was a question I had because, yeah, I mean, there's obviously that's a big challenge, and and I know you guys do a lot of work, uh, you know, obviously around the world. But it sounds like it's pretty diverse. So it's not just about bringing in and teaching, you know, guides how to guide. Like this Wind River example is is bigger than that. And are you in this situation? Are you actually is that a plan where you're going to be teaching them how to kind of not only protect their natural resources but uh, provide a guiding program or is that more through the the you bring in third-party groups to to help with that no that's correct we're we're actually just moving into that phase so um you know look we you know in the beginning of wind river we met with every stakeholder we could and and one group that we we met with was the school administrators um and oddly enough for being you know a small community there's a lot of schools there and outstandingly the common theme was look basketball is king on this reservation and Mm -hmm. if you don't play basketball there's nothing healthy for you to do after school and you go and get in trouble um and so we were like this is great natural something we can fix let's stand up outdoor clubs fly fishing clubs um after school um and you know the 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 unique thing about where the reservation is locally is that there's a bunch of teachers who moved to that area specifically and took jobs because of the outdoor opportunities, right? Um, you know, you're, you're just in outdoor Mecca world there. And so, you know, it was pretty easy to find some teachers who would volunteer their time after school to stand up fly fishing clubs. And so that's one of the things we did. And it's all about, you know, creating this introduction and interest and spark for, for, you know, what we would call, you know, a, a spark for conservation and, you know, the, you fall in love with outdoors, so then you want to protect it. Right. And so, um, we, we've done that and we've set up some other programs and we, right before COVID, we launched the pilot of uh, Native Guide Academy. So, you know, the whole opportunity or the whole point here is to create opportunities for these kids in this case to move into a job that is sustainable. Um, and, you know, in this case, there are, uh, you know, jobs available on the reservation, but also everywhere around that reservation. Um, you know, you're talking a couple hours from Jackson, right? The difference is, you know, from these, you know, world-class trout streams where you see, you know, eight boats a day, or, you know, you're fishing shoulder to shoulder with somebody on the reservation and you don't see anyone. Um, and, and the fish are, you know, bigger and dumber and, you know, uh, it, it's just, it's an amazing, amazing fishery. But what you have to do is you have to ensure that, you know, they have the skills to compete with all the other guides. Right. And so, um, there, we found this curriculum actually, uh, that was, uh, done in Bristol Bay. Bristol Bay has a, a native guide Academy and we kind of, we worked with some people to adopt it to, to the wind river reservation. And so we did that right before COVID obviously, you know, that became an issue, but, uh, that's getting ready to kick off again this fall. And so, yeah, the, the thought then is, you know, how do we move those people in from that and help them get a job placement? Um, you know, the, the, there is a game code on the reservation, which is interesting. So, you know, you take a step back 
30 years before the Wilderness Act, the tribes designated a wilderness area, right? So the, the, the idea of conservation and the ethic to protect their resources is there. Um, and so, uh, you know, they have a game code that was written in the 80s, and that game code outlines, you know, how the outfitting structure works. So there are, you know, currently three outfitters on the reservation, four outfitters, I guess. Some of them, like, you know, take you from state side to state side, and you have to hire this one person to drive you, you know, or, or to guide you through the reservation. Um, you know, there's some that are, there's a white water rafting and fly fishing, uh, you know, guy, his name's Darren Calhoun. People have probably heard of him. He's amazing. He has the Wind River Canyon, which is by far, in my naive opinion, the best fly fishing in the Western United States. You know, he could easily put 10 boats a day on that stretch of water. He limits it to two um, because he doesn't want the pressure. And so, um, you know, and then with the exception of him, who's been there for 30 years, there's, there's, you know, a couple other ones who are, are somewhat newer, but point being like the out, the out, the game code stipulates that an outfitter has to be an enrolled member. So you have to be an enrolled member of one of the two tribes to hold an outfitting permit. Doesn't mean you have to hire, um, guides that are enrolled members. And so if we can start filling those guide jobs with people from the reservation. Um, one of the things that is unique to what we do is that, you know, um, we focus on these three pillars of sustainability and we've, we've really talked about two of them, right? The environmental side driven by science, the economic side, you know, how do we create sustainable livelihoods through sustainable use of the resource? And then the third one is cultural, which is, you know, how do we ensure that, um, this culture is remains relevant and is passed down and continued to pass down, um, and expanded even in some cases. So it's not lost. Right. Um, and so that, look, you know, we're not the people that to do that, that needs to be done by the elders in the community. But if we make it a priority, then, you know, it can become a priority. And so, um, one of the things that we found in places and destinations is, you know, Rhea was a great example of this too, is the people that go on these trips likely fly fish all over the world. Right. Um, you know, and the stories that they come home and tell at the dinner table with their family or at the bar with their buddies doesn't tend to be like, oh, I caught the biggest fish in my life or, oh, I caught X number of fish over X number of days. It's like, man, I, I met this guy from, and this gal from this community and learned from them and was able to like experience a completely different culture that I never even knew existed. And it was the coolest thing that ever happened to me. And so if you look at a place like Wind River where you have, you know, opportunities really close to you, you know, like what pulls people from Jackson to the reservation to fish or anywhere else, right? Um, we feel it's that immersive experience. So when you go to the reservation and you get guided by a white dude, you kind of lose some of that, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, our goal is to fill as many of those jobs with enrolled members, but they got to have the skill set. That's a very long answer to your short question. I'm sorry. Today's episode is sponsored by Fishhound Expeditions, putting together remote Alaskan wilderness trips for your trip of a lifetime. This is not your typical lodge-style trips. These are remote float-in, remote trips where you're likely not going to see a heck of a lot of people except for uh, some some bears while you're mousing for rainbows, camping on on the beach, 
uh, just enjoying Alaska the way it should be enjoyed. In a recent episode that Adam was on, he shared his story and how he found uh, founded Fishhound after a lifelong passion and goal to get this going. And now it's great to see. So you can do this right now if you head over to wetflyswing.com slash fishhound and you can check out some of the uh, trips Adam has going on. And we're going to be heading out there this fall. So if you want to learn more about that, you can check in with Adam or myself. Again, that's wetflyswing.com slash fishhound, F-I-S-H-H-O-U-N-D, to support this podcast and a really amazing company. Okay, back to the show. Yeah, th- this is great. No, I think the cultural thing, that wasn't the thing, I wasn't thinking as much about that, so that is, I'm glad you touched on that. And, and I just want to give a shout out to, I've got a, a connection with a local indigenous uh, uh, hip-hop artist, uh, Superman, so I always love to give a shout out to him because he's doing some cool things in, um, in kind of up in Montana. Similar, so he talks about similar things, right? He's, he raps about that and stuff, but um but yeah, it's uh, you also get some pushback too, right? I'm sure you guys see it. I mean, I don't know when you're out around the world, you know, there's challenges there. But I know I've, you know, you hear from people occasionally that maybe, you know, uh, they talk about this is a struggle, right? Obviously, we've kind of wiped out indigenous communities in this country. And, and then you have people still kind of some of the bias, right? Some of that. And we don't have to dig into all that. But I, I would imagine that's a little bit of a challenge, like trying to get your word out there or just t- talk briefly about that. Is that is that a, a challenge for you guys? Or when you go into these communities, once you build the trust of the community, is it easy to promote this uh, around the country? Great question. Um, look, uh, again, the level of skepticism is rightfully high. Um, you know, we we do take the time, as mentioned, to build relationships before we talk about doing projects. Um, I think there are a couple things that uh, that make it easier on our end in the long run. One, like when I talk about developing relationships, I'm not talking about quid pro quo relationships here. I'm talking like, you know, let's use Wind River as an example. Um, you know, the our biggest partner there is tribal fishing game. So um, you know, it's one of the only uh, or a handful of um, you know, intertribal programs. So, you know, both tribes. Um and you know, the guy who runs that, the director is a art guy named Art Lawson. He is, you know, uh, an amazing guy that has an impossible job, but I've never met anyone more uh, dedicated to making his homeland a better place for the future. I mean, it is it, it is truly inspiring. But like, I mean, he's become one of my best friends now, right? Um, and so it's 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 a real relationship. It's not it's not a business relationship, um, you know. And when we go into a community and say, look, <clears throat> you know, when we get to this point finally, we when you tell them, look, we're gonna invite people down here to catch fish in the most inefficient way possible, and they're going to take a picture with them and let them go so somebody else can can catch them and you have the ability to have a business and make a fair amount of money from this and improve your lives uh you know they look at you like you're crazy right rightfully so um but you know what one thing that we're really good at is persevering through all those things and that's what it takes is keeping you know the the constant showing up the constant communication the um, you know, authenticity and, you know, when we say we're going to do something, we do it right. Um, and you know, that, that, that value system and structure, I guess that IndieFly has goes a long way in, you know, like if, 
you know, a community has a project while we're there and they're redoing uh, someone's house or, you know, they're uh, chasing wild horses or whatever, like we jump in and help. And so, you know, that fully immersive thing, you know, the sincerity, the vision, all of those things, I think is eventually seen of like, yeah, you know, um, and the other thing is just very simple. None of these projects work unless the community wants them. Again, these are a hundred percent community owned projects, right? Um, you know, we, we, there's nothing in it for us if they don't want it to work. And so, um, that does take some time to, to get through people's heads as well. Um, just the simple fact of, you know, almost everyone coming into this, these communities wants something out of this relationship. Um, and, you know, so it takes us some time to convince people, especially leadership of like, you know, look, this is, this is an opportunity for you, you know, not to only have like a community owned business, but really the model is this hub and spoke model of, you know, say it's a lodge, that lodge that, that is built is the hub, right? Um, but there are infinite smaller scale entrepreneurial activities that people can stand up from the community to service the people coming to the lodge. Right. Um, you know, somebody can sell their arts and crafts. Somebody can start a shuttle company. Somebody can start, you know, raising chickens to sell Westerners eggs because they have to have eggs in the morning. Right. Um, you know, all, all these different things. So, um, you know, but that's a great question. Yeah, it, it, it seems like, a, you know, obviously it's a challenge. It's like, you know, where we are, but it's cool to hear that you guys are, you know, digging in on this and uh, and it sounds like you're here for the long term. Do, are there other areas? I'm not sure. Do you, Are there other areas around the world you guys are looking at? As you look into the future, you know, uh, do you have places in mind or does that just come as you go? Yeah, we do. We have a, quite a long list, actually. Um, but, you know, time and money. Dave. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we are a nonprofit, right? So, um, you know, we run pretty lean and mean. And so, uh, while our team is all passionate and, uh, go getters, there's that only stretches so far. Um, and then, you know, the money thing, obviously we have to have the capital to do these things. Uh, but we do have a pretty long list. You know, the other thing I guess I should say here is that we don't jump into new projects, uh, you know, on a whim, like we do, a lot of due diligence before we do that. And most importantly, we make sure our ability going into a new project doesn't diminish our ability mm. to um, serve yeah. the communities that we've made commitments to. That's right. That's right. And is it, and I think I mentioned Oliver White at the start. Um, so is he still, uh, I think, is he out in that area? I mean, give me a heads up on that because I'm not sure I know that's where I thought there was the, the big connection, but it sounds like this is much bigger than just him. This is, there's other people involved at kind of his level, right? As a, as a guide, as a kind of a, a big influencer, right? Out there. Is there other folks like Oliver White doing kind of uh, promoting it at the same level? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we have a board and advisory council. Um, you know, look, Oliver's key to this whole thing. He's been, you know, in it since the beginning. Um, he's our chairman, right? Uh, you know, so, uh, definitely, definitely a big player geographically. He's, he is pretty close to the Wind River Reservation. Um, you know, he's in, uh, Idaho, which is, you know, just across the pass, as they say in Wyoming, which tends to be, you know, five or six hours everywhere. But, um, uh, yeah. So, you know, look, all, Oliver's key to this whole thing. Um, and look, I don't, you know, 
when you talk about leaders in, in this space, there there are a few, but you know, Oliver's one of those guys, and I'm clearly biased here. Um, that stands out, right? Um, you know, he he really takes a different approach to what he does. In that, you know, he uh, constantly is trying to find ways to give back, right? And so, I think that's admirable. Yeah, that is. That is. That's. Uh, yeah, it was fun connecting. I actually saw you. You met you at the IFTD and, and all over there in person for the first time. Was was definitely cool and. That's how you know this this show came you know this idea came to be getting this out there so um, so no this is great and I and I want to just give an opportunity for those listening you know if they want to dig in more you know what can people do if if they're kind of listening now what do you recommend if there's either small or little you know big or small things they can do what do you tell people Yeah for sure um, you know one of the things that people can do is you know learn more right you know there, there's videos there's um, you know, there's the website, uh, you know, shoot us an email, happy to answer any questions. If you feel compelled to get further engaged, um, you know, we have this small dollar donor program called the Indie Fly Corps. It's like our monthly sustainer program. You know, you commit to $20 or more every month. Um, that comes with some perks and benefits. Uh, you know, you can tell your friends and family about <laughs> Indie Fly. Yeah. You know, that's something simple. Um, you know, awareness is always big for us. Uh, you know, and the, the, the last thing I, I would say is go to one of these communities, you know, um, that is a way to have an impact. Um, take a trip. I love that. And that's exactly what, you know, like I said, uh, you know, I've got a couple connections and I, we were just out there last summer in that area and didn't hit that area and 2.3 million acres, just for those that don't realize, I mean, the largest wilderness area in the country, um, I guess more of the, you know, in the U S is the, uh, the, the salmon river, right? There's like 2 million acres. So this is a whole nother, just because it's on tribal lands is, is an equal size. So we're talking about literally one of the largest areas in the country. That's, is that kind of the, the way you guys look at it? Yeah, I mean, look, not all of that does is a designated wilderness area, right? Mm, right, um, right. Or you know, a roadless area. But uh, yeah, you know, your two point three million acres, you know, it, it takes you twelve hours probably to drive drive across, right? I mean, it's wow. and look, some of that is the terrain of Wyoming. Um, sure. You, know, you can't you can't go in a straight line, but uh, you know, it, it is. Yeah, it's a big, vast, amazing place. And 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 I will say too, just on the Wind River thing, so anyone can go fish guided or unguided, um, with a fishing license, a travel fishing license, which you can now buy online. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, while I highly, highly, highly encourage you to hire a guide because it is so vast and they can take you to places that you can't get to on your own. Um, you know, if you're driving through, uh, you know, go online, make sure you buy that permit, um, and, you know, stop and, and, and wet a line. Yeah, that's great. And I love that tip because that's those, you know, obviously people listen are into, uh, you know, fly fishing. So, so you can go in there and, and what would be your recommendation if you wanted to do that on your own and, uh, you know, obviously getting a guy would be better, but say you did it on your own, how could you get information on where to fish? Is there some information out there on kind of all that stuff? Yeah. So if you go to, uh, the wind river fishing game website, which I believe is and maybe you want to, um, fact check this, but yeah. I believe it's just wind river fishing 
there is, uh, you know, a section you can buy your permit, but there's also a section that lists the regs, um, you know, what to open when all of those things. Um, yeah. So, you know, you're talking about vertical terrain as well. So, you know, you, you, unless you have days and days to hike, you're unlikely to do a quick trip and get to a golden trout area. Um, but you know, there's a great chance of pulling out a 20 inch brown trout in, in certain places on that reservation pretty regularly. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's worth a stop. Yeah. This sounds amazing. Cause it, yeah, like you mentioned, you're so close to some of those other areas, the Jackson and where it's like, you know, sometimes it feels like, you know, there's a lot of people, right? Shoulder to shoulder boats everywhere, but you're talking about a place you can still go. And obviously it's regulated, so we're not going to like put too many people on any place, but that's good to hear. You know what I mean? Like for me, when I think of looking out, it seems like, gosh, I can actually maybe support the local indigenous community and have some fun fishing, right? Have a good time out. That sounds like a kind of a win-win and you guys are promoting that, right? Is that, do you feel that when you look in the future, does that still look like a challenge to you where it, maybe it gets too much pressure down the line or is that something you guys are going to be monitoring? Yeah, a couple things there. That is our constant fear, right? Um, you know, the, you have seen this increase in license sales on the reservation over the COVID boom, right? Um, as more people uh, got outdoors and were introduced to fly fishing and all these things, um, which, you know, at, at right now is great. Again, you know, uh, they have a trust re- relationship with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, who has an amazing team of a couple guys there um, who who are, you know, tracking the pressure type stuff. Um, but you know, our constant fear in these things is finding, or, or, you know, I guess what we try to, to balance is finding the right mix of awareness and people going to make an impact. And, you know, that impact is economic in this case is what I'm speaking of. Um, at the same time of keeping these places pristine, we, we don't, we don't want, you know, eight people on a stretch of water. We don't want, um, you know, uh, the populations to feel too much pressure and, and all, and, you know, degrade the fishery, all these things. Right. Um, and, but at the same time, you got 80% unemployment. And one of the funny things that I've, I find funny anyway, I'm sure people, some people do not is, you know, you, you talk to people about the reservation and they get, they have this visceral reaction of me, telling people about their honey hole and i'm like look man this isn't even your land like you know there's 80 percent unemployment on the this reservation let's solve that issue before you worry about losing your your honey right. hole right the 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 other thing is one of the things that we need to solve is the economic leakage problem so we have a team of socioeconomists that that kind of look at this stuff and they're much smarter than i am but if if you go to to the reservation of fish and uh you know you want to contribute uh economically by filling up your gas tank or going out to eat or finding a place to stay or whatever right um oftentimes those things are done in the border towns and so how, how can we keep as many dollars as possible leaking from the reservation? And so, um, you know, as people travel through, right, um, you know, for whatever reason, if you go from, you know, say east to west and you're going to Yellowstone, uh, the GPS units uh, or, you know, Google Maps or whatever, Apple, Apple Maps on your phone now, um, 
you know, they, they divert you around the entire reservation, right? Oh, wow. So, I mean, how, how do we get people to, to come down the middle of the reservation? Right. That's so, crazy. um, yeah, it's, it's all those multifaceted challenges, but the, the back to your point is, you know, that's something that we constantly, constantly struggle with is, you know, how do we make an impact, um, without, you know, um, overstepping and having this place just become, that's the thing is that you guys are promoting it. And you look at some of these other places, like you mentioned the Guyana, you know, and that's a unique people, right? That's, there's a certain amount of people that can do that trip, but you know, Wyoming is right in the middle of the country, right? Or, you know, the West, whatever, and people can drive right through. And you could see that if it, if you promoted it a bunch, you know, I can see how that could be a very busy, become a very busy place, but I'm sure, yeah, you guys are on track to monitor that. And and yeah, it's interesting. This is so, so you've got this now and then, and then for you, do, are you actually out in the, um, uh, where, where are you at now physically? Yeah. So, um, I'm in St. Paul, Minnesota, the frozen tundra. Um, my, I, I married a girl from Minnesota. So, um, we moved back here like eight years ago, um, to raise our family. Cool. Has it, has it unfrozen? I know we had a late season there. Has, is it still frozen there? Uh, thankfully not. I mean, we didn't really have much of a spring. I feel like it went from fifties to nineties overnight, but, um, it's, it's hot here today. So there you go. Awesome. Well, I got a couple of random ones, then we'll get out of here. And yeah. one of them, I think, um, was, was sharks in your background. Do you have an experience, uh, the connection there to the, to some work with sharks? Yeah. Yeah. yeah cool. Before I just want to like, tee that up. So I, last night we were, um, uh, Jacques Cousteau has been coming up a lot on this podcast for people like big influences. It's, last night we watched it old, one of his, I think it was one of his later films. But man, you know, you look at that stuff and you're like, wow, it, it's just, uh, I mean, it was impressive back in the day, you know, what he put together. And it reminded me again, right? Sharks and all these animals out there. So, so is that, talk, talk about that. I'm just curious on your end. Did sharks, is that, was that, was it that before you got into IndieFly? It was. Yeah. Um, you know, and that really became out of, uh, with, with a buddy, um, you know, who always had a fascination with the ocean and, uh, it was kind of when, when shark finning became a, a big thing, right? So you had a re- rise in the Asian, uh, economy and more people uh, able to afford nice things. And, you know, culturally shark fin soup, um, is, uh, of great importance. You know, it, it's, this is a bad analogy, but it's the one that I used to use all the time. It's kind of like wedding cake. It's one of those things that, um, when people have a nice function, they serve shark fin soup there. Right. Um, and I will say, I'm going to preface this with the shark fin thing is, 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 has become much less of a problem thanks to larger organizations doing, um, you know, uh, really important work from the bottom up to change the perception of shark fin soup, right? So, or, or shark finning period. The bottom up, kind of like, like Indie Fly is doing. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and you know, this organization was called Osearch. Osearch did a bunch of that too. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the thing was, is that there was this very large void in, um, data around, um, sharks. So like the whole model was how do you study, an apex predator of the ocean. Um, the only way you did so is when it washed, washed up dead on the beach. And then that data was kind of kept to people's selves so they could, you know, do, do whatever with it. You know, I'm not going to go into the nuances, but you know, 
we wanted to do two things. We wanted to figure out how you could study one of these things live and, you know, keep them safe. And we wanted to change the public perception of, you know, Jaws, right? You know, yeah. you talk about uh, sharks being apex prey of the ocean. But what happens when, you know, they're over harvested and start to decline in population, right? You know, it's any ecosystem. Other things thrive and that can have a negative benefit and all these things. Um, and so... Uh, you know, yeah, it was, it was, it was a really interesting world and, uh, was really lucky to be part of it. Right on. Well, and, uh, and I guess in the next kind of, uh, what are we at here? We're kind of going into like July, August in the summer, as you look out over the next year or so, you know, how does it look for IndieFly? Do you have, um, what's your next big thing? Do you have something there that uh, you can kind of give a heads up on coming up? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, you know, we're, we're coming back online from COVID and really when I say we, it means the communities, um, you know, Rewa is, uh, you know, back doing trips. They've done, uh, two sessions, you know, so they have two seasons basically a year and, uh, it's gone really, really well. Uh, and the cool thing, you know, just as uh, uh side note, the whole indie fly model is for us to step back, right? Um, and have it be a hundred percent community operated. And Rewa is there, man. And it's so cool to watch. You know, when we first went to Rewa, their only form of communication was a shortwave radio that reached the next village. And, you know, eventually that got to, you know, a large town and they could, you know, they could communicate that way. But now, you know, they have a website and the lodge manager has a cell phone that doesn't call anybody, but he can answer uh, e client emails from a satellite internet connection. And, you know, they've used the funds from the profits of, the fishing operation to, you know, invest in education and health and, you know, um, do all, all these amazing things, uh, all because people like to go down there and fish, but you're talking about, you know, uh, a group of people who are running this business and something that we didn't talk about today is the actual business side, right? Like the whiteboard right. accounting sessions in the beginning. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, they're fully functional on their own. And we'll be around as long as um, they need us and want us. But it's really cool to watch them be autonomous, if you will. God, um, that is amazing. So, you know, what that allows us to do is, you know, deploy those resources to other things, right? So Anna's coming back online. Um, but, uh, you know, Wind River is going to be pretty big this summer. So we're kicking off the Native Guy Academy. Um, we're doing a couple other things in terms of films and things like that. Um, and, uh, then yeah, we, we have a, a couple other, uh, you know, like the social impact projects that I, I spoke of that I will announce soon. And then really it's, 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 you know, what's the next big community that we can do and how can we operate? But first we want to ensure that, uh, we can fulfill our commitment to our other partners. Big part of that this year will be kicking off a, um, a fundraising drive to build the lodge on the reservation. So, you know, people can get involved that way as well. There you go. So right now there actually isn't a lodge where people can kind of, as we know it, right, go to a lodge and stay. That's right. And it goes back to, you know, there, there are a couple that are owned by, um, you know, uh, some outfitters that are small. This is just a supplement to them. You know, we're not in competition with those outfitters. It's just, you know, another, another arrow in their quiver, if you will. Um, but uh, again, it goes back to that. How do we keep dollars on the reservation? That's it. 
Awesome, Matt. Well, I'll leave it there uh, for the day and uh, definitely keep in touch with you. And hopefully I can make it up there. We'll, we'll send everybody out to uh, IndieFly.org and uh, if they want to connect. And um, yeah, man, thanks for uh, shedding some light on this today. It's uh, I've been, like I said at the start, I've been wanting to hear about the story for a while. And I'm glad to hear you guys are still rolling along. And uh, yeah, until we talk, catch you later. Appreciate the opportunity, sir. Thanks. So there it is. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash 342. 342 will get you the links and some videos and whatever else I can come up with here on this episode to uh, shed a little more light on this. We got a listener shout out and a past uh, a past sponsor shout out. Uh, Mark at Tyrite reached out to me recently and uh, let me know he really enjoyed the Henry Winkler episode. So just want to give a shout out, Mark. Glad to see you and good to connect with you at the last show. Great to see you're still running the show at Tyrite. Uh, things are going good there, and I appreciate you for listening to that episode. That was the Henry Winkler, the the Fawns, the story. One of my uh, definitely is going to go down as one of the one of the big episodes. So um, if you uh, want to connect with me and uh, and get a shout out here, you can send me an email, Dave at wetflyswing.com, or check with me on social media, and we could put it together. Reminder before we get out of here, travel time. This is their new segment where we're going to be slowly traveling based on uh, flight availability and uh, maybe some other things, costs potentially. Uh, But we're going to be mixing this up and flying around, maybe driving around, hopefully too. Um, We'll see how it works out. But wherever we get an opportunity to connect with somebody, I'm going to be choosing a couple winners this year to head out to your hometown and find a local guide and go do some fishing. And we also have this little co-hosted uh, opportunity. So if you're interested in also being a co-host on the show, this is your opportunity. So wetflyswing.com slash travel time. That's T-R-A-V-E-L time, travel time. That's our way for uh, for you to connect uh, with us on a little mini travel excursion. That's all I have for you to, uh, today. Hope you are having a good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are in the world. Appreciate your support and hope to catch Appreciate your support and I hope to connect with you online or maybe even on the water.